Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. It is a Thursday, and hey, turns out a lot of stuff has happened in the last 24 hours, yeah, John. Some I'll of it see. we're even going to manage to talk about. <laughs> uh, we have a uh, conflicting stories about what exactly happened on the Russian ship Moscow, the Moskva, yeah. which uh, was definitely badly injured. Ukraine claiming they totaled the ship with one of their own missiles. Right. A little bit of debate over whose missile it might have been. Russia saying there was a fire. We don't we're not going to say how the fire started and it blew up all our ammunition, but a uh, feather in the cap for the Ukrainian army, at, at least right now. This has to be good for Ukrainian morale. They mm-hmm. claim that they used an, an indigenously uh, manufactured Neptune class cruise missile mm-hmm. um, or two. And uh, and hit the um, SS Moskva, which is the flagship, I guess, of the of the Russian Navy in the Black Sea. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it limped back into port. It'll undergo repairs. Mm-hmm. It wasn't destroyed. It wasn't uh, sunk. But uh, this has to make the Ukrainians very happy. Also, probably making them happy is another eight hundred million dollars worth of oh, yeah. military hardware. And it's very specific this time. Eight hundred. This is another eight hundred million dollars, and it's you know eighteen one hundred and fifty five millimeter howitzers with forty thousand rounds of ammunition. Mm-hmm. It's multiple, not just multiple. It's a dozen uh, air defense systems, mm-hmm. um, new helicopters, helicopters, yeah, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, the support increasing. Also, I I guess at some point in the last couple of weeks, we stopped pretending there's a distinction between offensive and defensive weapons. Right. Which I guess is a relief, right? Uh, I don't think a lot of good is going to come from this war. But hey, that that tiny little thing, if we can get American officials to stop pretending uh, that they're offering only defensive support. Which to is their funny clients. to me. It's funny to me because, you know, the U.S. has always said, well, we're not providing offensive weapons, whether it's to Ukraine or to anybody else. These are just defensive weapons. And now when when the Russians complain, hey, wait a minute, these are these are not defensive weapons that you're providing to the uh, Ukrainians. The Pentagon's response is there's no difference between weapons, offensive or defensive. Ah, weird, (laughs) weird how there was a really big difference when it came to Yemen. There was a really big difference when it came to Ukraine a couple months ago. Uh, but hey, look, if that is one sort of myth busted, then terrific. There's, we, we are going to talk way more about that later in the show. Uh, we're going to talk about the economy again. We're going to talk about uh, housing prices going nuts. We're going to talk about CNN. Yeah, CNN, CNN. Uh, turning its uh, benevolent gaze upon us once more. Uh, but I first want to I want to talk about how New York City officials spoke about the capture of Frank James, the man suspected of committing Tuesday's mass shooting on the city's subway. We got him. That was from Mayor Eric Adams uh, from the NYPD commissioner, Keychant Sewell. We were able to shrink his world quickly. There was nowhere left for him to run. Come the back slapping happening by these Keystone cops in New York is unbelievable. Nowhere left for him to run. Seems like he trotted out of the chaos that he caused without any trouble. Right. Reportedly got on another train, leaving the station, got off at the next stop. 
which might be like the first perimeter you'd be trying to set, you right? As think. a police, right? Then hopped back on, still in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. He didn't leave the borough. <laughs> got no. off the trip, wandered around, got back on, sort of bummed around New York City for a day, and then called the tip line on himself. Uh-huh. Right? This is again, according, on I don't himself. know, uh, these are law enforcement sources, right? right? Talking to in media. Right. If I'm not, if some of this stuff is confirmed and some of this is not. I mean, but just like, you know, all over social media where New Yorkers going, uh, you don't tell well, me I just better. got a push notification asking for this $10 billion police force to go pick this man up. No, also, yeah, reportedly the city's own counterterrorism unit, which we talked about yesterday, uh-huh. was just out a couple blocks away uh, harassing homeless people and yep. busting up tent encampments. Yep. Absolutely, incredibly uh, and when he useful. Called, he called the tip line on himself. He said, hey, I'm I'm in the East Village at such and such an intersection. Yeah. Finally, the cops send some some cars over there to get him. They get out. They're looking around and a tourist points at the guy and says, oh, he's over there. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, now I want to take any glory away from Zach Tahan and his right. friends who uh, said they spotted James. Yeah. They were going to call and then they saw the police pulling up and were so like, they, oh, yeah, there he is. The, the owner of the bodega where he was working is also saying, actually, I saw the guy just like give all <sighs> of them, give all of them a couple billion dollars from that budget because they all did a better job than, better the cops. than the cops. As a reminder, Hate you know, say. the cameras in the subway weren't working at that station. A police officer on the scene couldn't get his radio to work, which the police Con- they they confirmed that and said, oh, it wasn't the radio's fault. It was user error, which does not like, make it better. How can you be a cop and not know how to use your walkie-talkie? use your radio and be like, hey, buddy, give, call 911 for me, could you? What do we pay you for? Uh, witnesses on the scene describe officers milling around in an oddly light mood. Uh, and, you know, yeah, most of them were out uh, busting up homeless encampments, presumably. Yep. Uh, it's it's worth saying, you know, Adams came out, said he was going to double the amount of police on the subway. He has, since he took office, has added about a thousand more officers anyway. Yes. If he doubles that, that will be six or seven thousand police officers on on yes. the subway, which sounds like. A lot, considering all the ones who were there didn't do anything to either stop this, which is maybe a pretty big ask, but then to apprehend the guy afterward. I have to laugh, Hops on a train, walking slowly around. Uh Uh Milling around. And yet, and yet, you know, doing the we got him. Yeah. The we got him. There was nowhere left to run. We shrank his world. Come on. (laughs) Literally, none of it is true. None of it is true. I had to laugh. um, Our friend Ted Rawl who's of course a regular on the show uh, tweeted today that what New York needs to do is to, is to recreate its transit authority police department mm-hmm. as separate from, from the New York city police department, really for the very reason that reasons that you've you know, cited, they just can't do their jobs. I think the LA County Sheriff's department, ju- this is just a thing that I saw on Twitter. I was like, it's a little bit too inside baseball to get into, but he just sent a letter to the County s- insisting that, the L.A. County Sheriff's Department be the only police force. They don't want a separate um, tra- metro transit authority. Right? They're metro transit uh, police. They don't want separate. Yeah. Because they want that money to keep yeah, coming Yeah, they want to the money. Yeah. It's about the money. And I guess the authority, too. I mean, it's just nonsense. And also, just speaking of, uh, you know, the, the hard work the NYPD does of uh, shuffling the poorest of the poor from one place to another in the city, there was a article in City Limits magazine from just a couple days ago detailing how many of these quote-unquote cleanup requests come directly from city officials, right? So not necessarily from people living in the neighborhoods where there are these tent encampments. Although, of course, you know, 
Some of them will. Uh, But just on March 30th, Eric Adams himself said city workers visited 244 encampments uh, between March 18th and 30th and quote unquote cleared 239 of them. Only five people from all those sites went into a shelter. Oh, my God. So it's just like this is not and the cops this take is their not stuff. working. None of these processes are are working. No, they're not. I, it, the, they'll give the homeless, you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes to clear out. And if you don't, they'll take your possessions. They'll take your tent, your sleeping bag, whatever you have, and they'll throw it away. Yeah. And then you're on your own. You start from scratch again. Yeah, it's a it's a horrifying thing that they're allowed to do. Um, oh, man, we have a lot to get through that we are not going to get to. I do want to mention uh, Diane Feinstein. Yeah. So this is not new that people are questioning Diane Feinstein's mental, mental fitness, right? Yep. Uh, I think Politico had a story out a year ago uh, that I believe quoted staffers, right? Not actual lawmakers. The San Francisco Chronicle has a story out now uh, quoting lawmakers in Congress themselves. And it begins by saying a California Democrat in Congress left a conversation with Feinstein very concerned. The lawmaker said they had to reintroduce themselves to her multiple times and that the senator repeated the same small talk questions several times uh, over the course of their several hour conversation with no recognition that they'd already covered this topic. Feinstein's 88 years old. She has filed the paperwork that would allow her to run again in 2024. It is a formality. Um, But the other interesting thing here is that if the Democrats hold on to the Senate, Feinstein will succeed Patrick Leahy as a president president pro tem. So she'd be third in line for president. Oh, yes. Which is, you know, never happened. No, but still. But, uh, you know, she obviously, so the lawmaker went on to talk to colleagues and you have now four U.S. senators, including three Democrats, three former Feinstein staffers and this uh, California Democratic member of Congress who all told the Chronicle anonymously uh, that her memory is deteriorating. She can't fulfill her job duties. Her staff is doing much of the work. She represents She's a senator for a, a state of 40 million people. What's, uh, California's got something like with the 10th largest economy in the, world, in the world, something like I don't know the yeah. uh, actual statistic, but it is a major global economy and run by or, you know, partially spoken for and governed by a woman who, uh, you know, not is, in is, right mind. Yeah, because she's 88. It doesn't matter if your grandmother who's retired and enjoying her hobbies. No you know, says the same thing to you a couple of times over. But these are people who are presumably making important decisions and getting a lot of money to make those decisions, too, yep. on behalf of their constituents. Yep. So I think this is a problem. I agree. That, of this course, is drove a big me problem. to every it seems like every six weeks I'm Googling how many members of Congress are millionaires. How and, and look at the House. You know, Nancy Pelosi's 82 years old. Steny Hoyer's 80 years old. Uh, Chuck uh, Grassley is 100,000 years 88. old. Mm-hmm. Uh, Clyburn is is 80 years old. It, it's it's time for a new generation. Yeah. You know, I don't know why they're hanging on like this. I, I don't know. I feel like it must be a sense of personal power and perhaps yeah. a lot of profit yeah. for them and their friends. That's right. what I think. I don't know why. I hate to say, but yeah, yeah. I'm sure you're right. Maybe that's why so many of them are millionaires. Yeah. Um, Making $180,000 a year. You become a millionaire yeah. 10 times over. CNN had a, a little video out. About about yours truly about uh, Sputnik and how uh, how surprising and terrible it is 
that Russian media is allowed to be on American yes. airwaves. The, it the is horror. unbelievable that this is allowed to happen. Yeah, I we are going to talk about it more later in the show. So I'm just going to pull out what I thought was the best, the best moment of the entire piece, which is when the CNN reporter, uh, after talking to someone from the FCC who says, yeah, we can't. It's you, yeah. you can't just pull them Freedom off public of airways. There is a thing. Yeah. Uh, so the reporter says, but on public airways, even if a station is backed by a country allegedly committing war crimes, they can in the U.S. continue to broadcast. And, <laughs> yeah. So a country allegedly committing war crimes like the crime of invading another sovereign country which is nothing that anyone in the United States knew anything about until Russia did it first, on targeting civilian infrastructure deliberately, nothing that the United States knows anything about at all, right. indiscriminately bombing cities and putting civilians in harm's way, nothing that we know anything about in the United States. I mean, the reasons they are now offering for why Sputnik should be shut down are the actions of the Russian government in war, right? And allegedly committing war crimes. If we applied the standard to the United States, Voice of America, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, all of those branches would have been shut down decades ago. And then shut down again if they'd been able to reopen after, you know, a grace period and then shut down again. I mean, it's just, this is not to say, so let's have a, an orgy of war crimes. Let's right. have a war crimes free for all. We love war crimes. It is to say their motivation is obviously hypocritical and false. And so then, you know, what is it? What, what do they actually want? What is the actual goal here? And again, if you if you don't want other state sponsored media talking to you about this, maybe throw some support to the independent media in the United States that does. That's right. right. You know. But that is exactly right. When, you know, when all media is sort of slowly being swallowed up by a, a couple of major billionaires and then, you know, the the front facing sort of PR companies for uh, Raytheon and, and Lockheed, then, hey, these, this, these are the people who have the budget to do it. I also want to point out uh, in the, they, they talk about war crimes, right? They say uh, war crimes yes. are the reason Sputnik shouldn't be able to operate. Then they quote James Clapper. Yeah, this is. Fantastic. Former U.S. Director of National Intelligence. I mean, which is, you know, ridiculous enough. But to shout out to Morgan Artukina, who, who yeah. Sputnik News reporter who clocked this immediately. Uh, James Clapper served in Vietnam, served uh, through 73 combat support missions, including some over Laos and Cambodia. Uh-huh. Countries we bombed the hell out of, uh, despite never Neutral declaring war on them. Yeah. And in Laos in particular, the most bombed country on Earth that was just dumping ammunition that you didn't want to carry back. Well, this is from Thailand, right? Don't want to carry your ammunition back. Just dump it on the top of a bunch of people who are living in, in uh, bamboo thatched huts. So they have to go hide in caves for years and years. So having a ma- uh, an individual who has committed war crimes, right? If he was involved in any of that, to talk about how uh, we should not be allowed to be on air because Russia is allegedly committing war crimes in Ukraine. I just, I'm not, I'm not flexible enough to do those kinds of backflips. Yeah. With a totally straight face. Yeah. That's the amazing thing. Which again, is just, just, I don't, I, I would not personally want to be part of upholding a system where we are allowed to do those things and other people aren't. I would rather be sort of pointing Day by day at the the biggest villain when it comes to all of this stuff and saying nobody should be allowed to do this. Nobody should be doing this, including us, the worst, the worst offender. Anyway, so there, there is actually going more. to be more to say about that yep. and a lot of other topics that we're going to get to later on. We're going to start that right now after we take a quick break here. You're listening to Political Misfits still. We're live in D.C. We're on Radio Sputnik and we'll be right back. 
back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Yesterday, we told you about a decision by the government of Slovakia to send MiG-29 fighter jets and howitzers to Ukraine. Today, the U.S. and the U.K. announced that they would send even more howitzers, helicopters, drones, armed personnel carriers, I'm sorry, armored personnel carriers, which is even better, and a dozen advanced radar systems. That's in addition to another 500 Javelin missiles, 300 switchblade drones, and thousands of anti-armor weapons. Since the start of the war on February 24th, the U.S. has sent Ukraine more than $2.6 billion in military aid, with lots more to come. Meanwhile, in another story, the U.K. made a very odd announcement this morning that it would begin sending refugees to Rwanda for resettlement. It's an experimental policy, but the government will be sending single male refugees to Rwanda with a one-way ticket. We're going to talk about that and more with Robert Fantina, activist and journalist working for peace and social justice. His latest book is called Propaganda, Lies and False Flags, How the U.S. Justifies Its Wars. Robert, welcome back. Thank you very much. Glad to have you. Let's uh, let's talk first about these weapons shipments. It seems like every week we hear reports of a new military appropriation for Ukraine making its way through Congress. Today, we have very specific uh, reports of what weapons are going to Ukraine. 18 new 155 millimeter howitzers, 40,000 rounds of ammunition, uh, ANTPQ 36 counter artillery radars, which I had never heard of until today. And uh, and an AMMPQ-64 Sentinel air surveillance radar. 30 more switchblades I mentioned a couple of minutes ago. Does any of this surprise you? This seems to me to be a serious uptick in the, in the quality and the quantity of, uh, of arms and uh, weapons systems going to Ukraine. It certainly is. It's uh, far more than the United States has ever sent before. What we have to keep in mind is that the any any war that the United States supplies weapons to and it's and it supplies weapons around the world, as we know, uh, benefits the military contracts of the United States. Now, those contractors just in uh, twenty twenty one alone spent over one hundred and seventeen million dollars lobbying members of Congress. Oh boy. Uh, just uh, in the last couple of days, Defense Department officials met with executives from eight of those uh, military contractors to discuss uh, Ukraine, Ukraine's needs should the, the war drag on. So we're seeing, as we, we see so often, U.S. hypocrisy. It isn't that the U.S. is interested in peace. It isn't that the U.S. is interested in uh, saving the world for democracy or whatever other platitudes government officials talk about. It's simply a matter of more profits for the people who are in power. Now, these these huge donations that go to members of Congress help them to get reelected, their, their campaign contributions mainly, although they're sometimes fact-finding trips and so on. But when a country such as Ukraine asks for a military assistance, then the uh, military contractors expect that the investments they have made in getting U.S. members of Congress elected will be paid off. And that's what's happening in this case. You know, this is something that I think most Americans either don't pay any attention to or are willing to, I think, overlook. And that is the the power and authority 
that defense contractors, our major defense contractors have in Washington, D.C., millions and millions of dollars going to lobbying and then billions of dollars going from uh, the appropriations committees through the Pentagon to the defense contractors. Uh, There are an awful lot of people getting rich uh, in this war, in any war. And uh, it seems to me that uh, just just like the case with Yemen, uh, we have a national interest in making sure that this war lasts as long as possible. Yes. And that's a tragic thing. As you said, a lot of people aren't aware of this. The United States government for years has fostered the myth that it needs a strong defense because of its many enemies. Remember Rudy Giuliani saying that uh, other countries hate the U.S. because of its freedoms, which right. is just a nonsensical statement. Nonsensical. Uh, and when you consider $117 million just last year, and that certainly wasn't the first year, it's it's been huge amounts of money uh, for many years. And the United States is interested in maintaining these wars. Look at, as you mentioned, Yemen, Syria, uh, the, the Syrian war that's been ongoing. Uh, Saudi Arabia is getting weapons to uh, from the United States to decimate Yemen. This is ongoing because it does make some people rich, and it's the same people who are getting rich all the time. They're, they're simply getting richer. Yes. The, the lobby groups in the United States have tremendous amounts of power. They have far, far more power than the average voter uh, whose, whose voice in the government is extremely limited. Yes, I think that's exactly right. Let's talk about these weapons for one more second. One of the complaints that we're hearing from the Russian side is that these are offensive weapons, not defensive weapons. First of all, does that matter? And secondly, I want to get your reaction to the U.S. response. This is from the Pentagon, that there is no such thing as offensive versus defensive weapons, which is exactly the opposite of what the U.S. position has been historically. Yes, let's talk about that for a minute. Uh Defensive weapons are generally quite short range. They're designed to uh, to block or prevent an attack that's coming onto a nation's uh, borders, coming within their borders. They're not designed to for long distance uh, because that is what offensive weapons do. They are meant to, uh, be, for example, to be fi- rockets to be fired long distances into another country to uh, destroy something in that country. So to say that there is no such no no such no difference between offensive and defensive is, is simply a myth. But for the United States, as long as it's military, they don't care whether it's offensive or defensive. They just want to sell it. And does it matter? Well, if the if the Ukrainian government is getting offensive weapons, what does that mean for uh, for the future, if it's going to have these, if it if it uh, overcomes the Russian invasion, and then it has offensive weapons, which no country should have. Uh, if no country had those, no country would need defensive weapons. But that's another another conversation. But it does matter that these are offensive weapons because it will potentially change the the Ukraine position from simply defensive to offensive and may uh, may impact Russia more directly. Rush, and I'm talking about Russian uh, civilians, hospitals, and so on. It will give the Ukraine the capacity to commit the same kinds of war crimes that Russia is committing in Ukraine. Right, right. Um, we, we mentioned yesterday on the show that uh, that 
the Slovak government was going to provide MiG-29s to Ukraine. Uh, this is what uh, they had been provided by the Soviets back in the day. Uh, they used Russian spare parts. They're transitioning to American uh, fighter jets. And so they're they're donating these MiG-29s to Ukraine, and the U.S. is going to replace them with old, I think they were F-16s. Um, the Slovak MiGs are old. They're Soviet era. But Ukrainian pilots train on these MiGs. Is is this going to boost the capabilities of the Ukrainian Air Force measurably, or are, are these just too old to to do anything? Well, it will certainly increase their uh, their capa- capabilities of the Ukrainian Air Force. Uh, whether it be significant is is in question. But regardless of that, the United States will also generously make up any difference uh, by the uh, the uh, the weaponry that it's sending mm-hmm. and the, uh, the the strength of the, the weapons. So these these Slovak transfers of the uh, MiG-29s will have an impact, certainly, but it's not going to be a significant impact that will be uh, game-changing. Okay, that makes sense to me. Today, there were media reports that, uh, that the Russian Black Sea flagship, the SS Moskva, was hit by an explosion. The Ukrainians are saying that they struck the ship when they fired two Neptune-class cruise missiles at it. Uh, the Russians are saying that there was a fire on board that ignited a weapons cache. They're they're investigating it. The ship is now limping back into port. How important is this beyond the the morale booster that it might be for uh, the Ukrainians? Uh, it, it, does this really matter terribly to the Russians? Uh, it doesn't matter terribly simply because. Russians have quite a, an extensive navy. The whether or not this ship was damaged by a uh, uh, rocket from Ukraine or an internal explosion uh, will probably never be known because each each side will try to seize a narrative. But as far as its importance to the war effort, uh, regardless if we're looking at the Russian offense or the Ukraine defense, it won't have a significant. Uh, a significant impact simply because it's just one of many ships. Certainly, it's a, it's the, as as we mentioned, the Black Sea flagship, but there are others that have the same anti-ship, uh, anti-missile uh, systems on them. So this won't this won't be a game changer. Let's talk for a minute about this crazy. Well, that's my own bias. This this British decision uh, to to send single male refugees to Rwanda. Uh, the Rwandan government has agreed to this, uh, but human rights organizations are furious. What's the genesis of this gre- agreement? Is is it even legal? It was my understanding that interna- international law was very clear about um, a, a country's responsibilities vis-a-vis refugees, uh, and those responsibilities did not entail putting them on a on a plane and sending them to Africa. Exactly. And you mentioned uh, the crazy decision. I can only agree with that. This this has come certainly out of out of uh, nowhere. The the genesis of this agreement is simply that the British government doesn't want any more refugees. Uh, I think it was yeah. uh, Boris Johnson who said that Britain's um, Britain's compassion is limitless, but its uh, ability to accommodate uh, yes. refugees isn't. Yes. Well, the, Britain's compassion is certainly not not uh, limit uh, limitless. It's very limited. The fact that they're sending just single male refugees, the fact they're sending anyone out of the country is uh, 
is in violation, as you mentioned, of international law. Also sending them to Rwanda, which has an atrocious human rights record. These are people who are going to wind up in Rwanda, incarcerated in uh, terrible conditions, possibly worse than, than what they were fleeing. They had made the very dangerous uh, journey to, to reach a country that they thought they would, where they thought they would be safe. And instead, the British government is simply sending them back to, to, an, to awful conditions. The, uh, the, there's, there's certainly some, Johnson will get some points on this among some people in Britain by saying, oh, he's, he's protecting their borders. He's not letting these foreigners in. Uh, but what he's doing is, is really violation of international law violation of human decency and certainly violation of the human rights of these people that he's deporting. Yeah, I, I would agree. He made a point of saying that these refugees would not be housed in hotels, that they would be housed in detention centers. So not only are they going back to Rwanda, not back to Rwanda, not yeah, only are they going miles, to Rwanda, yeah. they could be from Syria or Afghanistan yeah. for all we know. We don't have any idea. I but mean, for the crime of attempting to cross the sea and yes. seek asylum in Europe, uh, yeah. they will be detained thousands of miles away in a country they pr probably have never been to. Or maybe even never heard of yeah. in a detention center, no less. I mean, what, what kind of future? Uh, there, there is no future. You're in a detention center in Rwanda, and, and then what? It's not like they're going to have a job waiting for you, you know, in this detention center. It's what, what makes it, it's not just the crime of, of um, attempting to enter uh, Great uh, Britain. It's the crime of trying to stay alive. Yeah. Trying to, trying to save their lives from wherever they're coming from, whether it's Afghanistan or Syria or, or, or Yemen or wherever it might be. These people were in desperate situations they had to be in order to attempt this trip from any of those countries to get to any, any countries where refugees are currently fleeing in large numbers to get to Britain entails an extremely long, extremely dangerous uh, trip. Their lives are in danger from the minute from before they leave, certainly. But the minute they get on a boat or, what, or, or start walking, whatever it is, their lives are in great danger. And they finally get to a place where they think they're, they might have some freedom. And they're being sent to Rwanda, as you said, a place they never dreamed of being, where they'll be in detention centers, where they'll certainly be mistreated uh, because they won't be recognized as people with rights. They'll be recognized as humans, but not with you, as humans with having any rights. This is, this is a criminal action on the part of uh, the British government. Australia did the same thing several years ago. Uh, we were talking about this before we went on the air. Yeah, go ahead. Tell, tell our listeners about that. Well, it was it started, I think, in, in 2014. It only ended last year. Yes. Uh, when conditions were conditions in the, the detention centers where these refugees were staying were uh, abominable. Uh, there were uh, there was major violence. Some of the people incarcerated went on hunger strikes. It was an awful, awful situation. Now, that's finally ended, although uh, incredible damage has been done. But. Britain is now using that same model, but not learning from the atrocious mistakes that Australia made. Agreed. English Channel crossings are very high right now. This is what uh, Boris Johnson was complaining about uh, in a BBC interview that he gave uh, early this morning. In 2020, 8,404 refugees crossed into the UK. Okay, 8,404. Last year, the number was 28,526. 
And this year, the number is approaching 1,000 a day, if you can imagine such a thing. Now, it seems to me that the logical thing to do, and God knows we have problems in this country, but you set up facilities along the border where people can be fed, they can be given a bed and medical care. And then you figure out what to do. You resettle, you send them to be with family if they have family here, you talk to other countries about maybe uh, some sort of a resettlement deal. That's not what the, what the Brits are doing. What the Brits are doing is saying very simply, we can't afford it. Our doors are closed. We're not going to put these people in hotels. They're going to go to Rwanda. Now, morality aside, can you see any way in, this, in which this is a workable solution? Well, are the Rwandans supposed to receive funding, for example, that they would, you know, presumably uh, use to, to feed and, and clothe and, uh, and house these people? Because that just seems like, like it's an awfully big assumption. It is an awfully big assumption. Uh, Britain is paying Rwanda something, but whether any of that will go to deal with the refugees yeah. remains to be seen. And that's where the the that's one of the major problems. With this there, there there's so many problems with this this new policy that England is uh, implementing. But uh, it, it's hard to put morality aside in in this discussion, simply because we're dealing with human beings. We're dealing with with people just like you and me, and they are being treated in the most unspeakable ways imaginable. So, but if we can put that aside as much as we can for a minute, for Britain, it's workable because they're just getting rid of these people. They're just just as if they were, were garbage and just, just getting rid of them. Uh, the Rwandas, Rwandas will receive them, will incarcerate them in, as I mentioned before, probably terrible conditions and not use any or use minimal of the funding that they're receiving to to uh, support them. But as far as anything about schooling, uh, uh, housing, employment, uh, the, I, the possibility of them having a future in Rwanda, there is, there's no possibility of that happening. Zero, zero percent uh, chance that that will happen. I, I can't even imagine. I mean, if you took, if, if you did a study to find the poorest place on earth or one of the poorest places on earth where you could send somebody, it would be Rwanda. You know, besides all the, the famous or infamous, maybe, human rights problems that the country has, you know, genocides, for example. It's, cr it's criminal history. Yeah, it's just unspeakable. It cr right. A and on top of that, I mean, they can't feed their own people. And now they're going to be taking single male refugees. It just makes no sense to me. But that leads to my, my next question. Can you see any other countries following suit? Is this a model for other countries? The reason I ask is because public opinion polls in places like, most importantly, Germany and France, but also Greece, Italy, Spain, Hungary, uh, Poland, have turned pretty solidly against refugees, especially in the last year or so. So should we expect to see more of these weird resettlement side deals being negotiated? That's very possible, unfortunately. However, regarding the agreement that England has made with Rwanda, there is a huge outcry among human rights organizations that yes. this is simply, simply criminal. Hopefully that will stem the tide a little bit and that uh, these other countries that you've mentioned will not try to make the same kinds of deals because they could make the same kinds of deals with, with Rwanda. It's a very poor country. It doesn't care about these people. 
any country can ship them there, pay Rwanda some money, and the Rwanda government's happy. They have some money, and the, they don't have to really care about. They put them in a cell and, and basically forget about them. So uh, hopefully, uh, human rights organizations will prevent the, these things from happening on a large scale, and, and hopefully they will defeat the decision by the English government to do it. It's, it's being uh, fought in the in the courts. What we have to remember, though, is why are these people fleeing their countries? In most cases, it's because of war, Yemen, Syria, so many places. Afghanistan. Uh, Afghanistan. There, some there are some economic migrants. Certainly, they just need are looking for a better uh, a better life. But many of them are uh, fleeing war. Well, if you look at the source of these wars in Syria, the United States is. Uh, supporting and has since the start of the war supported anti-government uh, terrorist groups uh, in Yemen. The United States is supporting the Saudi uh, war that wants to install a, a very reinstall a very repressive government. So these people are fleeing these and other countries. Afghanistan, twenty years, the United States decimated that country because they need to either save their lives or. They need to have something above their existence. If the United States would simply stop its interference around mm -hmm. the world, allow countries to run their own governments, none of them are perfect, certainly, but allow them to provide uh, opportunities for their, their people to work, to go to school, to raise their families, then we will see an end to refugees. This would be better for the refugees. And and it's what must happen. However, we go back to our earlier discussion with the profit motive. And as long as that's there, the wars will continue. Robert Fantina, thanks for joining us. Robert is an activist and journalist working for peace and social justice. His latest book is called Propaganda, Lies and False Flags, How the U.S. Justifies Its Wars. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll take a short break and come right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, turning to economic topics, both domestic and international. We're going to talk about food prices and uh, what we could see over the coming year as those prices continue to climb, hitting records in February and in March. We're going to talk about a, a pet subject of mine, special economic zones and who they actually benefit. We're going to talk also about what Elon Musk could do with all his money other than buy Twitter and <laughs> what it means to have him actually trying to take the, country, uh, the company private. Joining us for all these conversations is Dr. Richard Wolf. He's professor of economics emeritus at the University of Massachusetts. He's a visiting professor in the graduate program in international affairs at the New School University in New York. He has a syndicated weekly show, Economic Update. He's the author of a number of books, and we're delighted to be joined by him. Uh, Dr. Wolf, thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Let's start with global food prices, which is something we've heard a lot about. I want to ask about what the impact could be in countries that are already in economic, dire economic straits. 
Uh, as I mentioned to start, global food prices jumped by more than 20% year on year in February. This is according to the UN's Food and Agriculture Organization and hit record highs again in March, rising more than 30% year on year. A lot of that is due to increases in the price of grains and oils, which Russia and Ukraine are major exporters of, but other commodities are also getting more expensive. And so I want to ask what these price increases mean for countries that rely on these imports uh, and also ask what effect sanctions on Russia will have on these prices in the future. Well, I'm glad you asked because it's it's a way of, of giving lessons in basic economics that have somehow eluded an awful lot of people. So let's do it very simply. Um, food is ob- obviously a basic requirement of human life. We can't live if we don't eat. So you might imagine that if it's a basic thing, you know, like air and water and other basics, that it would be distributed in some way that reflected a society's values, you know, for example, that all human life is is equally valuable, that equality is important, and that something as important as food be distributed equally, sort of like we distribute air uh, and basically water. Uh, We don't do that. We use instead an economic system, capitalism, and the mechanism of distribution it has, the market. And what that means is if you use a market uh, and anything for any reason becomes scarce, in other words, that there's not enough of it given the demand for it, the way a market works is it solves the problem of what to do when you don't have enough for everybody who wants it. And it solves it in a very particular way. The scarce items, in this case, food, is given to those who have the most money. The way this works is the scarce item has its price go up. And as the price goes up, Poor people can't afford it anymore, so they drop away. They don't get it because they can't afford to pay for it. The scarce item, in this case food, then goes to those who have the money, who are relatively richer or wealthier, and therefore in a position to pay the higher prices. So the way we're distributing scarce food in the global uh, economy today is by raising its price the way you just summarized, and much more, by the way, is coming in case anyone's wondering. And so we are effectively uh, rationing the scarce food and giving it less to people who are poor and more to people who are rich. If that offends anyone listening, then the problem here is not this or that detail. It's a market system of distribution. And you know, a footnote, back in World War II, which wasn't all that many years ago, when the United States had to deflect a lot of resources to fight World War II uh, against Japan and against Germany, uh, we did not want the reduction of food production in America because our resources were going into the war, we didn't want the reduction of food to be distributed by a market because that would be unfair, we then said, because only the rich could then afford to feed themselves. And you'd have a spectacle like a wealthy person being able to pay the high price for milk to give to their cat while poor people couldn't have milk for their children, etc. 
So what the United States government did then was to create what was called a rationing system. The government of the United States during the 19, early 1940s distributed ration tickets to Americans. And if you went to a store to buy milk or meat or sugar or coffee or gasoline for your car, Money was not what was the thing to pay. You had to have a ration card. If you had money but no ration card, the uh, seller, the merchant, was uh, prohibited by law from giving it to you. And you might smile when I tell you what the principle was in handing out ration cards. Here we go. To each family according to their need. If you had a bunch of children in your family, say under the age of 15, you got more milk ration cards than if you were an elderly couple with no children in your family. Mm -hmm. And that way we distributed food based on people's need equally considered in terms of the criteria of numbers of people or ages of people. We did not allow the market to do that. And the amazing, sad thing about America today, and indeed the whole world, is that we are not even talking about that kind of a ration system, uh, rationing system. We're simply assuming that somehow the market has to do it without facing the injustice built in to the market mechanism. No, and so let me ask, I mean, we are, obviously people in the United States are suffering from the effects of inflation, but we are also sitting pretty comfortably in a grain exporting country. So we're going to be in a position to, if we if we choose to, make a bunch of money off of these high prices. And, and I want to know, like, are, are these prices going to translate relatively soon into the possibility of, of mass hunger in countries that have to import most of what they eat? Absolutely. And by the way, I wouldn't be quite as quick as you are about the United States. Um, when the markets around the world start showing rising prices, American grain exporters are going to be looking at a situation where they might be able to get more money for their wheat or their corn or or their soybeans or whatever it is they produce by shipping it overseas mm -hmm. to where people are so desperate they'll pay God knows how much money. And then you'll see shortages begin to develop here and prices will go up and suddenly people will be readjusting their diet and with all kinds of medical uh, health effects that we can't even predict. Let me add, add a footnote here. We also allow in a capitalist free enterprise system, every producer of food, whether we're talking about the farm where it's grown or the food processor uh, who then packages and ships and, and processes it and so forth. The, if you add up all the employers in America, all the people who hire, they're the ones who set prices. And that's a tiny minority of our people. I mean, less than 1% of the American population are employers. We are overwhelmingly a country of employees, which is usual in capitalism, which means we as employees have to pay the prices that they as employers set. Now, when they set them, we're supposed to what? Trust them? 
believe in them? Well, let me give you an advice. I've been a professor of economics all my life. I've also taught in business schools. What you what we teach the American a businessman or woman who goes to a business school is that the name of the game in business is to make money. The name of the game in business is to be profitable. Your career will do well if you make more profit for your employer, and it'll go in the other direction if you don't. Therefore, when you ask a young person graduating from a business school, what is going to be the key thing that guides your decisions once you work in a business, the good and correct answer is, I will do everything I can to protect the profits we have and to increase them if I can. All right. So now let's answer the question, why are the producers of food at all stages raising the price? The honest answer, because it's profitable for them to do it. But they don't want to admit that because that forces the rest of us to face what the economic system we live in really is. So instead, they tell us stories. I'm only raising the price because gasoline went up or because my wages went up or because or because they're always looking for something other than the profit is my bottom line, which in fact is what they do and what they believe. Let me ask you, Dr. Wolf, because there's been a lot of concern about particularly Africa, uh, countries in Africa. Uh, Lebanon was mentioned also as a country that's really reliant on wheat exports from Russia and Ukraine. And I want to ask a, a couple of questions. One, how much of this is a truly a supply problem? How much uh, of this potential suffering is going to be due to sanctions? I mean, obviously, production in Ukraine is going to be very difficult under these circumstances. Uh, but is that is that as big a part of the problem as perhaps the sanctions that have put on been put on Russia? And if you are a Western nation, imagine that we had a conscience, right? And we didn't want to see other parts of the world uh, go hungry as a result of this particular conflict. What what could be something that we could do sort of globally, right? You, you mentioned sort of ration cards as a domestic response. What could be a global mechanism to ensure that uh, these price, there's a cap on these prices and that these countries that need grain are able to get it? Okay, quickly. Number one, prices for food as well as oil and other things were rising long before Russia invaded Ukraine. So anyone who wants to tell you that it's the war in Ukraine is, I'm going to be polite now, misleading you, that's not an adequate explanation. The war by the way, is a very small item. It so far has no impact on Russia's production of grain, which is a major producer, or on Russia's production of fertilizer, which is an important input into food production all over the world. Russia exports uh, fertilizer, etc. You're right about Ukraine, but in the large, <coughs> excuse me, in the large picture of global uh, food production, uh, Ukraine, even if it doesn't produce anything this year, uh, is not that big a player. And others like Canada, like Argentina, uh, many other parts of the world, 
not only could, but are already ramping up their grain production because they can see what we're talking about and they can understand that they're going to have a market that they didn't have before replacing whatever the Ukraine can't produce. Now, it'll take some time for sure. And so there may be some supply disruptions. But they are not of the sort that ought to have anything like this level of price increase. So the conclusion you need to draw is that what's mostly happening here is that, how shall I put it, it's one of the little mantras you teach in economics, that the logic of the seller is to charge, quote, whatever the market will bear. Well, what that means is the food processors, the food shippers, the food businesses in a capitalist world see an opportunity to do what they're in business to do, make more money. And the way to do it now is to raise the price because everybody else's price are going up, so you won't get in trouble for being the only one. And you can point to the war and to the sanctions and other things and claim that they're disturbing. And there's a grain of truth uh, to that. But the bottom line is you could absorb most of that. Supply disruptions are not a new phenomenon. Mm -hmm. They happen all the time because of climate change, because of weather change, because of other kinds of political uh, disruptions that happen. Now, on your last point, Rationing is something that could be done globally. Uh, the Food and Agriculture Organization out of Rome, that's part of the United Nations, has procedures for that kind of thing because it's happened before in different parts of the world. If you had a world community that cared, yeah, it could make sure that the any real shortfall in grain would be re allocated. In other words, we would redistribute the gain so that nobody would starve to death. Uh, we would all have to make adjustments. Certain kinds of grains would be a little scarcer than others. We might have to substitute corn for wheat in some cases, soybeans for corn in other cases, whether that be feeding animals, which is a major use of grain, maybe do a little less of that, build up a little more uh, of the grain available directly for consumption rather than meat. I mean, there are lots of ways of coping. It's really a political question whether particularly the rich countries like ours take some initiative to do this or they don't. And to be honest, at this point, the initiative taken by this government is somewhere between nothing and nothing. Yeah, it seems to be uh, requesting requesting that companies uh, show some patriotism. But that, of course, is only to do with U.S. consumers, right? You had uh, Hakeem Jeffries, is that his name? Yeah, Hakeem Jeffries uh, asking oil companies to show some patriotism and bring prices down for American consumers. Haven't seen a lot of uh, requests of our agricultural producers to show some humanity and lower their prices, even though they could continue to gouge the rest of the world. Well, to me, if I could speak for them just briefly, mm -hmm. it would be fair for them. I mean, you're quite right, but it would be fair for them to say, either as oil producers or as food producers, we don't want to be singled out as the ones being asked to be patriotic. And they'd have a point. This is something that a, that a government of the whole society 
so that we can, and again, I remind you of the rationing, that we can do something that is a better, more just uh, service to our whole population, mm -hmm. not put all the burden on this one or that one, but say, okay, let's have a general uh, adjustment. And that's what rationing was designed to do. Everybody could understand, you know, you give more milk ration tickets to a family with children than you do to a family that doesn't have children at this moment. That's not a, a, a decision that most people would quarrel with. It has a, a, a humanity and a morality and an ethics built into it. And I don't doubt for one minute that the American people who did that back in the 40s uh, could do it again now that we are faced with a with, with a kind of crisis of this sort. Mm -hmm. Dr. Wolf, I'm going to pause you right there. We're going to come back and continue speaking with Dr. Wolf. We're going to take a quick break here at the top of the hour, but don't worry, we're going to continue this conversation in just one minute. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll see you in a sec. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, continuing our economic discussion with Dr. Richard Wolf, economics professor, international affairs professor, radio host, and author. And Dr. Wolf, um, I wanted to ask you, in light of what we have been saying, right, about, about global food prices, about the different uh, mechanisms available to stabilize them, should one wish. I wanted to ask in this context how we should view the remarks by Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen uh, warning that countries that have remained neutral on the war in Ukraine and that have maintained economic ties to Russia risk economic isolation. I, I wonder how, what you think she is suggesting here. I'm embarrassed by... Uh... By what she says, uh, it strikes me as a bizarre attempt to turn the world upside down. Let me explain. The United Nations, a week or so ago, in the General Assembly, voted on uh, removing Russia from something called the Human Rights Council. And it was an interesting moment when they took a vote. There are 193 countries in the world that are members of the UN General Assembly, 193. How many voted to remove Russia? Answer, 93. That's a minority of the world's countries voted to remove Russia. 24 countries voted against removing Russia. Um, in the neighborhood of 50 or 60, I remember the exact number, voted to abstain from doing so, and the rest didn't even vote. This is not a, a world in which the people who are against uh, excluding Russia are some kind of isolated minority. Yeah. If anything, the majority of the world, if you count by people, is on the other side of this issue. <clears throat> Let me be clear. Russia is now allied with China, and the two of them together have the active support on the issue of Ukraine, of India. 
Russia is the largest country on this planet in terms of geography. China is the largest country on this planet in terms of population, and India is number two. It's not clear who's isolated here. This is a kind of rhetoric that makes you wonder whether Janet Yellen, who I might mention is a classmate of mine at Yale in getting her PhD in economics as I was getting mine, I do know her. Um, this is an attempt to join the, the chorus of Mr. Biden demonizing Russia because it's, they think, politically advantageous to do so. I have no interest in defending Mr. Putin from anything or from Russia from the responsibility it undertook in invading Ukraine. But the rest of this is a bubble the United States is living in, the, the isolation that most Americans better worry about if they haven't already is the isolation of the United States and parts of Western Europe uh, as being the only ones that are on this tear uh, around the invasion of Ukraine. It is for the rest of the world, and I read the foreign press every day, for the rest of the world, it is a bit of a mystery what is going on in uh, London and New York and maybe in Berlin, uh, but for the rest of the world, doesn't look like that at all the way it looks in those countries. They are isolated, US, UK, Germany, much more than the rest of the world. Yeah, it is remarkable how uh, continually referring to this as a, a global conflict and the world is watching and the world is the world is against uh, Russia, et cetera, et cetera. It's really sort of t telling on themselves, really, when you see like, OK, if this is the world, right, if your world is entirely Europe, uh, you know, part of North America, Europe and, and a part of Asia, then, of course, we don't get the same reporting on atrocities in Syria or Libya or Yemen or Mali or anywhere else. It's not that's not your world. And so what happens there, I guess, doesn't matter. And it really hasn't been clearer than it has been uh, over the last couple of weeks. I also want to switch gears a little bit, but let me just add to that because very, very important. And I know it's slightly off topic, but, you know, we live in the same world, you, me and everyone listening to this program. I keep real close tabs and the United Nations, the United Nations keeps track of civilian deaths in the Ukraine. And believe me, I, my own family has been through bombardment and all the rest I empathize and sympathize with the people of Ukraine who are going through an unbelievably horrible experience. But here's the reality. The war in Ukraine has been going on roughly 50 days. The UN reports 1,892 civilian deaths. Let's keep that in mind. Under 2,000 as of now from the beginning. That's a terrible, terrible loss. 50 days, 2,000 civilian deaths. But let's be real. The United States invaded and occupied Afghanistan, not for 50 days, but for 20 years. It bombed and strafed and exploded and droned way more people than have suffered so far in, the U in Ukraine. Uh, I understand, I'm not equating them or anything else, but for the president of the United States to refer to what happened in Ukraine 
as a genocide in light of what the United States and some European allies did for 20 years in Afghanistan. That's a level of self-deluding propaganda that ought to make you cringe. What in the world is going on? It's so outlandish that the interesting thing is not to dispute the details, but to ask yourself what must be going on in a society that has to overhype what's happening in that way. Yeah, yeah. When we grapple with this day in and day out, what is, what is going on with the society and what is the purpose that it serves? Uh, can you indulge me and, and let me ask you a question about a, a topic that I'm particularly interested in, which is special economic zones? Uh, I was reminded of them because of this article in The Diplomat on the Golden Triangle gambling zone that it says is the world's worst. And this is a zone between uh, Laos and China. Uh, the diplomat alleges that it is a hotbed of sexual exploitation and human trafficking. Uh, that may be the case, but like, I, I'm just curious about the role these special economic zones play around the world, because essentially they're they're just little geographic carve outs from one nation's uh economic rules, right? And economic policy. And so they make, make a little carve out so people can make make more money or make money in a different way or not follow certain rules. And it's just such a strange idea to me. Uh, and I wonder if you could uh, talk to us a little bit about how they work and who they usually benefit. Yes. Well, it, it's an old idea. It's been around for many, many decades. Um, it has had a, a different set of names uh, over the years. Um Usually the names are changed to put a better face uh, on what is actually going on. You might uh, remember the phrase of putting lipstick on a pig that uh, doesn't change the fact that it's still a pig. Uh, what this is, is a inducement to big business. And that's really what it's been all along. Uh, to give you an example, Mexico years ago uh, set these things up. It's called the Maquiadora region. It's in the northern part of Mexico near the U.S. border. And basically what they do is quite right, as you said, they suspend a whole host of rules and regulations that make doing business in that area more profitable. And the hope is, okay, uh, American businesses wouldn't go to many parts of Mexico because it's not profitable. Okay, let's create a special zone right near the U.S. border, and there we will either eliminate or lower the taxes they would normally have to pay, or we would r reduce or eliminate certain rules, like you, you can't make a worker work more than eight hours, or a rule that says you have to give them a half an hour or an hour lunch break, or the rule that says you can't employ uh, children below a certain age. You, you suspend whatever rules you think will bring businesses to you. And usually you consult with the businesses if you're one of these governments, and you find out what they want, and then you give that to them in that special zone. You call it a special zone because you don't want to say, we've made the thing more profitable for those folks uh, to bring them here, because if you said that, then people would ask, gee, what do we get for giving them more profits? Mm -hmm. And the answer is child labor, fewer taxes that mean we can't provide public in yeah. other words, you'd have to face what the government is doing. 
This way, the whole thing is hidden by a phrase like special economic zone, and then you give out a statistic like 2,600 people got a job, which yeah. may be true, by the way, but it is has to be weighed, that benefit, against what the costs were in the taxes they don't get anymore and in the conditions those workers will have to work under. If you ever visit the Macadora, Macchiadora uh, factories on the border there in Mexico, Mexico, you'll see that you've not done a service to anybody unless you are thinking of yourself as the kind of person who can justify horrific work conditions, horrible pay scales on the grounds that it might have been even worse for those people if you hadn't done it. Yeah, I've, I've, I've seen them. I've lived in lots of different places where they had different economic zones and always thought this is just this is just letting you just grabbing a little bit of territory on, on which to exploit you a little bit further. Uh, thank you so much for indulging me with that. That was author, radio host and economics professor Richard Wolf. Thanks. Thanks again for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with my co-host, Michelle Witte. CNN had a story today that criticizes the fact that Sputnik News is still on the air. It accuses us of spreading propaganda and outright lies about the war in Ukraine, and it ran a couple of clips quoting our colleague Lee Stranahan, taken out of context, of course. Also, of course, the hosts just don't understand the concept of free speech, and they certainly don't understand their own guilt in perpetuating lies about things like weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, fake chemical weapons attacks in Syria, and reports about the ghost of Kiev and the heroes of Snake Island. We're going to talk about that and more with Jim Cavanaugh. He's the editor of thepolemicist.net. Welcome back, Jim. Thanks for having me. Jim, we all knew this CNN story was coming. They asked all of us for interviews. Um, we all ignored them, except for our, our colleague Garland Nixon, who, uh, much to his credit, agreed to give them an interview if they would do it live. They refused. And then they denied that Garland ever even made the offer. Was this a gratuitous cheap shot? Or do you think that this is something that we at Sputnik should be increasingly worried about? And not not the thing about Garland. I mean, just the overall idea that they need to they need to knock us off the air. They feel compelled to knock us off the air. Should we be worried? Yeah, well, of course, Sputnik should be worried because they're out to get you. <laughs> you know, that's clear. They're out to get everybody who's dissenting from the, the narrative. They're, they're clamping down in the, in the, in the guys, in the, actually the, the paradigm of, a war, of wartime censorship in the United States. And they're, yeah. clam they're, they're out to get anybody who's, who's the Descending from the from the narrative, and especially some uh, a, a media organization that's funded from Russians. So that's you know, but it's not just Sputnik who should worry about it. Everybody should be worried about what every American should be worried about what's been going on with this kind of censorship in media and social media over the last couple of years, and it's getting worse and worse. You know, they are shrinking the Overton window, and they're going after everybody who's outside of it, and they're constructing more and more rules and regulations, you know, Twitter just, uh, not Twitter, I think it was YouTube, just revised its terms of service 
so that you can't put up anything that suggests that Ukraine might be killing its own citizens rather than Russia. Even though, you know, there are scores of videos about with refugees from Mariupol saying just that and, you know, all kinds of other things. So, you know, it's really it's something that we should all be worried about. And uh, CNN's not going to they're not going to stop. I don't I think this, you know, in terms of Sputnik itself, I think this might be the beginning of a concerted, you know, uh, offensive against Sputnik from uh, from the media all around. And I think it bears watching the justifications, the sort of ever-changing justifications. First, it's they're they're threatening our democracy, they're destabilizing our democracy, and then, you know, oh, then we elect a democratic president, so so that's fine. Now, the latest justification, at least that CNN offered, is uh, because Russia is allegedly committing war crimes. Right. So that's a reason to not allow, if that's a reason to not allow state-sponsored media to broadcast. Yeah, then there should be no media in the United States, period. You know, the BBC is going to have to be go off air. I mean, it's just, it's just ridiculous. And again, the same thing happens with non, uh, you know, uh, critical voices that are not affiliated with any state media. The justification becomes somehow finding a way to categorize their uh, opinions as abuse uh, or hate speech, when in reality, it is increasingly clear that it is 100 percent about content. And it is very frightening. You know, the, the reporter, the CNN reporter actually said in, in, in this thing they're sowing doubt and and distrust of the government. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you know, you see, uh, you know, that's the job of the media isn't to make people trust the government more. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's not to prevent people from mistrusting the government. This is a government that's lied to us to get us into war multiple times in everybody's living lifetime. And you can go back to remember the main, you know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is, <laughs> so it, it, it what you have in CNN is people like Brian Setzer going to Jen Psaki, the president's spokesperson, and his first question to her is, "How can we do? How can we help you better?" <sighs> you know. So this is that state-affiliated media. You know, in, in once the the people they want, once the Democrats got into power, that's who they wanted into power. Now it's state-affiliated media, and they are getting. It's the the state, it's the government itself who's putting pressure on media organizations and social media organizations to censor more. So, you know, it is incredible hypocrisy. And, you know, they are the biggest purveyors of disinformation. They have been for decades. And and that's what we have to live with. And I would just want to point out, not to you know extend this too much longer, but the first of the people who are being most threatened are, are independent American media, right? Exactly. Because they don't have the deeper pockets that any state-affiliated exactly. media has. Kevin Gastola, the dissenter, does not have pockets as deep as the Russian government. You know what I mean? Status quo, which is constantly getting its videos booted offline for, for no good reason. And all of these other independent outlets, right? If you don't want to hear these difficult truths from uh, other state-sponsored media, support independent media. That's right. That's a very good point. You know, they're out there and they should be supported and they are getting crushed. You know, I got I got uh, suspended from Twitter last week for a while. You know, they're all they're going after uh, ABC and the major media can put up all kinds of lies that are proven to be lies and they'll stay up. But they go after the nitpick on anybody who's uh, independent and doesn't have the backing of essentially the state. This this certainly has happened before. You know, the mainstream media, they take they take shots at us uh, with some regularity. Um, and it's not just the the broadcast media, but but magazines even, right? Uh, it, it's never bothered me in the past. But what does bother me is the hypocrisy. The mainstream media wants to talk about war crimes, right? And they had the audacity to bring James Clapper onto the CNN piece as our colleague um, 
uh, Morgan uh, Artikina. I can never say I can never say their name properly. Morgan Artikina pointed out uh, uh, Clapper was involved in illegal uh, bombing missions over Laos and uh, Cambodia in the Vietnam War. Those are war crimes. Nobody wants to talk about that. But anyway, when the mainstream media wants to talk about war crimes, but they don't want to talk about the murder of civilians in Iraq. They don't want to talk about the CIA's torture program or about illegal U.S. military interventions in dozens of countries all around the world. They don't want to talk about renditions. They don't want to talk about these archipelagos of secret prisons that we ran all around the world. So public opinion is, is against us. How do we get Americans to, to see the truth? How do we get Americans to think critically about these issues that the government is lying to them and they ought to be thinking this through themselves? Yeah, you know, they're bringing back George Bush. According to George Bush about yeah. how bad it is that countries attack each other, <laughs> country aggression, you know, it's, it's unbelievable. And they're locking up Julian Assange and they're locked up, they locked up you exactly. for telling the truth. You know, so, I, but the, 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 the question you ask, how do we get Americans to wake up and see the truth? Well, well I don't know the answer to that. I'm sorry. You know, uh, it is quite silly that we have to be talking, the, the only place dissident Americans outside the uh, Overton window can talk is on a Russian sponsored station. That's kind of ridiculous. And when I win the lottery, maybe I'll do something about it. But until then, you know, this is what we get to do. We get to talk. We have to express ourselves when and where we can. You know, I'm not interested in doing this. I'm not talking to a Russian. I'm talking to American people. And, you know, because yeah. I think there's an analysis and there's things they should know. And we just have to keep slogging along. And I think it's going to get much more difficult because, as I say, they're, they're clamping down in the mode of wartime censorship now. And what they're doing that in order to create the conditions for war, create the psychological conditions for the Americans people to say, OK, it's OK to go to war here again. Right. Hey, I want to switch uh, gears a little bit and talk about uh, something that happened in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Grand Rapids police have released video footage, finally, of a police officer pinning a man down. He's a Congolese refugee by the name of Patrick Leoya. Patrick Leoya, they pinned him down to the ground and shot him in the back of the head. Uh, the cop had pulled this poor guy over because his plates didn't match his car. Uh, he got scared. He had a passenger in the car who just sat there calmly. Uh, he got scared. He got out and ran not far, 10 feet or so. The cop tackled him, uh, pulled out his taser. They, they stand upright finally. And when the cop points the taser at him, Leoya goes to grab the barrel of the taser to, you know, to not be tased. Uh, they go back down onto the ground. And while the cop has him pinned, he then, like I say, shoots him in the in the back of the head. So there have been demonstrations this week demanding release of the video. They finally released the video. It's actually a compendium of nine videos yeah. because somehow magically the cops uh, his body camera got turned off just before the shooting. Yep. You can see everything else. No problem. Yeah. And then just as he's going to shoot him, he shuts the camera off. Uh, but everybody on the street, it seems has those doorbell cameras and that filmed the whole thing from nine different angles. So, um, they finally released the video, but there are no charges pending against this cop who's white. The victim of course is black. He's from Congo. Help us understand the process here, Jim. What's next? Is there 
I mean, there has to be an investigation, of course, but should we expect a grand jury? Certainly, we've learned lessons from George Floyd and dozens of other black men who have been killed by cops. What's the process here? Well, you know, I don't know what they're going to do. I suspect there will be a grand jury in this case. I I saw the video. It was 20 minutes long. Yeah, it's an there's a real struggle. The guy was really struggling for the uh, for the taser. Yeah. And finally, the cop gets him down and he has on and he's on top of him. And he's finally in a position where he's got the guy under control. And he pulls out a gun and shoots him in the back of the head. It's unbelievable. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I there's going to have to be some kind of reckoning. I think this is going to be a, a certainly a grand jury and maybe charges like uh the George Floyd situation. Uh, and uh, let's see whether there are demonstrations like there were for George George, George Floyd. I, uh, but, you know, this is going to keep going on because the, the fundamental problems of policing in the, in the United States are, have not gone away. They're not going to go away. You know, uh, the police have a kind of uh, exceptional freedom to do crimes, to commit crimes and to kill people in, 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 in circumstances that are outrageous. And uh, that's because the social situ- situation of the United States is such that uh, you need police to, uh, to tamp down the social pathologies and the social violence that's out there. So, I, I, and, and it's not going to stop. So, I, you know, uh, and, and uh, it's racialized in the sense that, you know, black, white, white police and, and black Citizens are black citizens are much more uh, met, uh, have much more danger in the face of white police, but it happens with black police officers too. It's going to be a real problem. It's not going to stop. What they'll do in Grand Rapids is going to depend on how much political and public pressure there is, street pressure, if there are street militant street demonstrations. Uh, but I just unfortunately think you know this is something which is we're going to be living with for quite a while. I think you're right. Jim, uh, Michael Sussman, the former attorney for the Hillary Clinton campaign, yesterday lost his motion to dismiss charges of lying to the FBI. He now has to go on trial. Um, This is a a process charge, as we've discussed, but it's still a felony. And even if he doesn't go to prison, which he likely won't, if he's found guilty, he'll lose his license to practice law. How do you see this playing out? This just seems kind of straightforward to me. Either you did it or you didn't do it. And not only did he do it, but he did it in a text message, which is really, really dumb. Don't do it in writing. Don't do it in writing, for God's sake. How do you see this playing out? Well, yeah, I think, you know, who's 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 defending him? Is he going pro se or is he going to call in the uh, <laughs> boys? <laughs> I mean, uh, 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 yeah, he's going to take a plea probably. Oh, or, yeah. Uh, lose, lose his license and uh, maybe do uh, six months or, mm-hmm. you know. Suspended sentence, but it's going to be it's the it's the guilty plea that's going to be the thing. And the question is whether he's going to get that plea and get a very light sentence in terms of a jail sentence if he gives it more information and if yeah. he talks about something. So that's going to be what's interesting to find out. And I don't know. And we'll have to see how well and how uh, um, how tightly uh, Durham plays it and whether he yeah. goes after it aggressively. And I think that's going to be interesting to see. No. No sympathy from me. No, nor from me. Uh, finally, I want to ask you about uh, Elon Musk. Uh, so Elon Musk, you know, last Elon week he Musk. bought nine, nine, <laughs> yeah. uh, 9.2% of Twitter. Then he's going to go on the board. Then he's not going to go on the board. And then yesterday he offered to buy 
all of Twitter for $43 billion in cash, which he has plenty of, and he could buy four, five, six Twitters. Uh, Much to my surprise, the Twitter board announced today that they are giving serious consideration to the offer. That was the quote from the board. My friends on Twitter on the left are equally divided on this, right? They say this is the end of free speech. And then some of them say, finally, a guardian of free speech. So what do you think about Elon Musk? Let's make an assumption that he does buy Twitter. What does that do? And takes it private, like makes it a private company again, which I think would be. Right. It would make it a private company again. He's offering, I think it's $56 a share, which is more than it's worth. Uh, That tells me that he's serious about it. He has money to burn and he's willing to burn it. Um, It tells me that he's actually serious about free speech, even if it's speech you may not like. And we've temporarily lost Jim. So we're going to get him back in a second. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Elon Musk is the Oh, good. There you are. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, if he's offering, if he's offering a, a premium on the share price, then they got to consider it seriously. They have to. And that's their job, to produce share responsibility. I hope he buys it and sends it out into space, yeah. <laughs> you know, because maybe with Radio Sputnik, <laughs> close that's the right. whole thing down. <laughs> uh, Pre-programmed. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, start all over again. But I don't have any you know, illusions about or any hope for uh, Elon Musk doing. I mean, maybe he will open it up more because I, I think really the the current even since Dorsey has left, I think the current management right. is closing it down more. Oh, I agree. And, and narrowing it down. So there's a lot of room to come in and say, I'm going to be a free speech guy. I'm going to open it up some more and open it up some more without really, you know, uh, solving the problem. And I don't I, you know, Elon Musk is a. Another narcissistic uh, <laughs> character who thinks he knows everything and should run everything and yes, will run a lot of things. And if he runs Twitter and buys Twitter, I, I have no illusion that's going to be any better. Or And I don't have any great fear that it's going to be any worse because it's pretty bad right now. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. OK, we'll leave it there. That was the voice of Jim Cavanaugh. Jim is the editor of the polemicist.net and you are listening to Political Misfits. We're going to take another short break and come right back. So stay tuned. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou. And John, I'd like to tell you the, the best story that I have heard about NFTs so far, and it involves Jack Dorsey, uh, so it sort of carries on the coattails of our last conversation. Uh, so a, a crypto entrepreneur last year bought a, an NFT of Jack Dorsey's first ever tweet. It didn't say, it just said like setting up my Twitter or whatever, but he he invested in it. He bought it for $2.9 million. Are you kidding thinking me? Thinking this is going to be a great Twitter invest, a great investment. I'm a crypto investor. NFTs are the hot new thing, which we haven't heard anything about for a while no. now, which is why this delights me. No. Um, he listed the NFT for sale again last week 
for $48 million. Uh, this report is from Coindesk. Oh it's been widely reported elsewhere. So yeah, list it for $48 million. Uh, I would like to ask you what you think that NFT actually sold for. Wow. I mean, I, I could barely venture to guess. I know what I would pay for it. I might give you a buck for it. Want to take want to take a guess as to the actual? He selling? paid two point one. He paid two point nine. He offered it for forty eight million. I'm going to say he got uh, a million bucks. The <laughs> the last offer he got was just under two hundred and eighty dollars. Two. So it was going down. Reports from like uh, thirteen hours ago were like uh, latest offer three thousand three thousand dollars. Now it's down to 280. So oh maybe my God. the reason we were, maybe, I do not we know. Right. I, I have not looked into this at all. I have only noticed we're not hearing anything about NFTs anymore. But maybe all of those efforts to suddenly get regular people to invest in NFTs was because they were, they were going bust faster yeah, than anyone anticipated. It was a pump and dump. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I told you, I, I've sheepishly admitted that I watched this absolutely awful show called 90 Day Fiance, mm-hmm. right? I'm addicted to it. And I, I generally don't like stuff like this. But anyway, there's a couple on there that decided to sell an NFT of a photograph of their feet. They thought that it would appear to, you know, more prurient interests yeah. and people who are fush, foot fetishists and whatever. I would whatever. love to sell photos of my feet, man. I just want to make money selling pictures of my feet. <laughs> Someone <laughs> tell me how to do it. I'd be happy to do that. They didn't sell a single one. Oh, that's so sad. So they shut it down. Oh, no. Not a single one. How bad looking were their feet? Well, I think what it is is that foot porn is free. Yeah. That's the problem. problem. (laughs) I don't know. People, people apparently still pay for some things. Like some people I think like to pay for, for whatever they're getting. There are interesting sites where you can find people doing that. I I met a woman once. Just videos of people putting on capes. Oh yeah. yeah. All right. Sure. sure. I met a woman once who got paid to have somebody videotaper in uh, spike heels, uh, stepping on bugs, squashing bugs. People get off on that. Yeah. I don't like the killing bugs part. No. But fruit, it's not for me. Look, text me. <laughs> See, there's a lot of money there potentially. I mean, now our, our guest is on the line. This is a mortifying. <laughs> no, we're coming back to talk about serious topics. Look, that <laughs> NFT, look, that was a serious little weird economic moment we were having with NFTs. Then we go. got derailed into what John and I would do for money. <laughs> I want to come back now and talk about uh, housing prices, folks. Housing prices, mortgages, and what what is to be done, if anything, in the in the short and medium term. Here to talk to us about it is Ron Kluwer. He's Illinois market president of Gorman and Company, and he's an affordable housing advocate, uh, which we need right now. Ron, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. So whenever we talk to you, we talk about how hard it is getting to buy a home in the United States. But in the last week, it feels like it's gotten much, much harder. On the show last week, I think I talked about the surge in housing prices, meaning that monthly costs, monthly mortgage payments are something like 55 percent higher than they were last year. And I think a lot of that has to do with mortgage rates, which now are averaging 5 percent for the first time in a decade. And of course, this is connected to the Federal Reserve's process of rate hiking, rate hiking to slow down inflation. But it really feels like Regular people are being used as the feds break on the economy, right? And we are suffering for it. And so I wonder what you are seeing in terms of both mortgage rates and home prices and what you would predict for for the next year or so. You know, I think sadly, I'm I'm looking forward to a time where we talk and it's good news. Me too. <laughs> it's not going to be in the next year. Yep. Um, you know, unfortunately, 
I think we're going to continue to see uh, housing prices increase, and there's a number of, of reasons for it. You know, we have not as a nation built significant housing over the last uh, decade plus. Um, many, you know, many, especially Midwestern markets, still trying to recover from the Great Recession and, and just starting to see housing production come back. So we have a limited supply. Um, we have, you know, folks who are able to move and move quickly, heating up the prices of those units that are on the market and selling because, you know, they could they could own home uh, own two homes or they could, you know, pay for one home while they're waiting to sell another home. And uh, and you know the the other pieces of post COVID or I guess we're still amidst COVID economy is that you're seeing remote housing uh, the desire to work remotely continuing to increase and so those in that market you know there was an 80 plus percent increase in January folks buying a second home for remote working um, so the the demand is remaining very high but the supply is remaining very low so continued increases in in housing price. It, yeah, couple that with an increase in interest rates and trying to slow down, um, you know, slow down inflation. It, it's really squeezing the folks in the middle who are, you know, just uh, trying to have a normal life and buy a, ho- uh, buy a house, buy their first home, squeezing them totally out of the market. And in particular, Bloomberg had a story out this week about how uh, for especially big loans, called these jumbo, jumbo mortgages, jumbo loans, rates are actually not quite as high. So if you are looking to buy a house that is particularly expensive, um, Bloomberg describes the conforming limit of about $650,000 worth of loan. In expensive markets, the limit might be more uh, closer to a million. 970000 was what the limit would be for San Francisco and New York City. You're in a new category of mortgage. And before the pandemic, those loans had very slightly higher interest rates, about half a percentage point. Right now, they're uh, slightly lower. So if you have more money to spend on a house or you, you're you willing to take on a bigger loan, you're getting a break, which just makes it feel like the people who have less money are being exploited even more. So I don't know if this is going to be a long term trend or if this is just sort of a blip as interest rates kind of sort themselves out following the Fed's initial rate hike. You know, I, I think what's happening there, um, you look at those uh, big, uh, big mortgages that are jumbo loans. And generally, they're going to people who have significant wealth. Obviously, they have a significant income source, generally going to have nice cash reserves. And so they're a lower risk. And I think it's all about risk right now. We've, you know, we've got a lot of folks that uh, we're trying to break into the market with, you know, first-time mortgages and or first-time homebuyers, first mortgages. And, and, you know, many of them perhaps not with the traditional 20% down. So you've got risk there. You've got PMI, private mortgage insurance that is added to that. And these jumbo loans help kind of balance out the market, especially for banks who keep them on their balance sheets. It keeps the risk lower. And so I, I think what we're seeing is, yeah, a, a premium, um, a, a reduction in interest rates for those individuals. So there's some stability. But to your point, again, the, the folks who have the means are the ones getting the benefit. And the folks who don't have the means are paying more. Can you talk to us a little bit about this idea of mortgage insurance? This is something that I encountered, you know, looking around. If you don't have, you know, the traditional down payment was 20 percent. Now it's, you know, 12 percent is what some places want. Uh, but it seems like what's happened is 
insurance providers have gone, oh, okay, house prices are have vastly outstripped wages. And so people can't afford to put down the, same, the size of down payments that they used to. Uh, we'll just give them bigger loans, but we'll skim even more off the top is sort of what it seems like. So you, if you only have 3% or 5% or 7% to put down, don't worry, you can get a bigger loan. You just have to then pay more insurance to someone for that privilege. And now I'm sure that this process helps people get into homes. But again, it seems like a way of, of taking more money away from the consumers who can afford it the least. Yeah, I think the you know the whole idea there is again controlling that risk, right? So if if as uh, you know we were talking about the jumbo loans, that you know those are generally folks who are putting twenty percent or more down, but yeah, you get into first time buyers especially, they don't have the savings. The the amount of money they're paying on rent has really accelerated. Um, affordable housing in the rental market is keeping them from saving money. And because they're not able to save as much as years past, they're putting down lower down payments. Those private mortgage insurance rates help reduce the risk for the lender. Um, in many cases, those are going to be a government-backed mortgage. And so, yeah, you're seeing, you know, you could see private mortgage insurance be hundreds of dollars on a on a typical payment, which you know, yeah, maybe you're able to get more on, on the um, mortgage side, but are you still able to afford the combination of mortgage and the PMI, the insurance? That's still something that get, gets looked at when they're looking at your mortgage versus your income. So you're, you're probably going to get pressed down on the value you're able to buy, which in some cases just puts people back out of the housing market. Yeah. If they're able to afford it, you know, they're, they're, they're going to bear the burden. And often also, I mean, you, as you were talking about with people, people who are able to do remote work moving into communities where maybe more people are not doing remote work, you don't have any sort of stabilizing economic mechanism like a like a minimum wage, right, or like a, a government provided health care. And so, you know, I think you're aware all the time as you're reaching your financial limit that what you're doing is buying a house in a community where the people who've lived there for a long time probably can't afford it. And that, you know, that doesn't feel good. I want to ask about what what could be done at the governmental level, what, what could be done sort of with political will to solve this problem? I don't think we are going to uh, affect the operations of the Federal Reserve. But Joe Biden has talked about building more housing, which would be a fine long term solution. Uh, but I wonder what is being proposed for the medium or short term. Right. Canada has banned foreign investors from buying homes for the next two years. I know a group of housing industry leaders last month wrote to Joe Biden to request that he launch a council on housing afford affordability, saying actions by the Federal Reserve need to be countered by other actions to stop housing from becoming impossible to purchase. And so uh, I wonder I wonder what kind of mechanisms could be leveraged here to to give some short term alleviation right now. Sure. I mean, we're seeing different homebuyer programs start to come out, especially um, state housing finance agencies using some of the ARPA funds to create uh, buyer incentives. So, you know, the, the, there's a couple things at play here. Um, one, you're you're looking at how do we help folks who need down need a down payment to perhaps alleviate some of that PMI, that insurance that's there. So we're we're seeing those buyer programs, or especially first time buyer programs, step in and provide additional capital. So maybe you don't need the PMI. Hopefully, we're also seeing them in communities where. 
the housing market has not um, really come back. I, I mean, you know, I live in Rockford, Illinois, in areas of my, my community, we don't have a housing market that's stable in many of our neighborhoods. And so you, you know, you go into this house, uh, you go into this neighborhood where housing is declining and the condition of housing is declining. And so, you, you know, you have an investor who maybe uh, wants to put money in it or a developer or a single individual, right, who wants to put money into their home and, uh, you know, buy a house that perhaps has been foreclosed on or was sitting in a land bank and, and really, re, you know, reinvest in the neighborhood. And then the house value is significantly lower than the actual cost of buying and fixing the house. So some of that ARPA money is going to programs that um, are, are addressed to uh, take care of the appraisal gap, the amount, you know, the amount where the project is or the property is higher than the actual worth. So there's some unique ways that those issues are being addressed, but clearly it's not enough. Um, and, you know, what will that do long-term to Americans trying to afford the American dream? Um, I don't see an end in sight even there that will have equitable solutions that'll make a meaningful difference in the near term. I mean, what about mechanisms to, say, prevent single family homes from being bought up as investment properties by huge pension companies, which I'm, I'm sure we talked about the last time we spoke? I know that uh, there was a recent 60 Minutes piece about this, and I believe that the developer defended himself by saying, oh, the, the amount of homes that we buy is a, a fraction of the available stock. But you know, I, I think also you could assess that this might be the beginning of a trend, especially as fewer and fewer people are av- able to afford a single family home. I mean, would you see any kind of political will to prevent that from happening if as as the Biden administration, if the Biden administration keeps talking about available housing stock and how important it is to have this stock? Well, OK, it doesn't make much difference if people are, are only able to rent it and not able to buy it. So I wonder if you see maybe any political will to uh, control that activity at all. You know, at the moment, I don't. If, uh, if we're going to be um, blatantly honest about it, I don't see any political will. I, I think what you know, what people hang their hat on, what uh, decision makers hang their hat on, is that these you know these buyers are stabilizing a market. But I I would disagree. I, I think depending on the location and the value of those investments and how much of the market they're taking up, um, they could be really destabilizing the market. You're taking so many home buyers out of the market. Um, I, I I just don't see the will there yet. I hope that's that's likely to change. But I do think the idea of having a housing commission where these items are assessed and we have meaningful conversations that can help change policy is absolutely essential. Well, let's hope uh, he responds to that letter. I think it was only sent only sent this week, maybe just a couple of days ago. Ron Kluwer, one of these days we were going to have you on to talk about some very good news. I, I'm going to cross my fingers and hope that's the case. In the meantime, that was Ron Kluwer. He's an affordable housing advocate and Illinois market president of Gorman and Company. Thank you so much for joining us, even if it was kind of blue. No worries. Thank you. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Welcome back. 
back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, just talking off air about how much money it would take for us to do different things. Uh, I have other stories. I have a couple of stories. I, I got my NFT story out of the way. I'm sorry. That was my probably my favorite story of the day. Uh, another great one is that, you know, we've, we're seeing strikes all over the place, right? All Labor over Ashes, the place. A, another Starbucks in Pennsylvania just voted to unionize yep. yesterday. The vote I was mean, 20 to nothing. Yeah. A lot of them have been yeah. unanimous, uh-huh. right? So that's very exciting. Uh, we talked with Tina Desiree Berg yesterday about nurses striking at Stanford and the possibility of, a, a, well, dock workers, they're negotiating a new contract. I don't want to jump the gun here. But in New York, luxury building doormen have authorized a strike as their bargaining negotiations have stalled. So I guess luxury building workers on Billionaire's Row uh, have not gotten the contract that they want to see. And so they've just had the possibility of a strike authorized. You know, there was a a piece in Politico today, too, about congressional staffers wanting to uh, form a union. They've got an association. It's not really a union. Those staffers don't make. They they barely make make enough to survive. Yeah. Yeah. It's awful. That seems that's every when I was in Kazakhstan, too, like you can't you can't you literally cannot survive on a salary if you are, uh, you know, a sort of government functionary at a low level. Oh, yeah. When I was and in, it really just prices out any normal people. The only people who can afford to do that are people who have family money to rely on. And that's so right. it just helps ensure that the only people who are governing you are people who have gotten really rich, you know, through this system. I was surprised when I was living in Pakistan. Um, how little um, soldiers and policemen make. They don't make enough to buy food and to pay rent. Yeah. And so they'll set up illegal roadblocks all around the city. Yeah, you have and to take some money off you, people. Yeah, and you give them, you know, 50 cents or whatever and you pass. I was I was out with my Pakistani colleague one night. We were actually in the midst of an operation and we got stopped at a uh, at a roadblock. And I, I said, oh, this is going to be a problem. He said, no, no. He said, we don't, we don't pay these guys anything. And he rolled down the window and he gave the guy the equivalent of a dollar and the guy saluted and let us pass. Yeah. That's how they feed their families. Yeah. So we'll see uh, the the agreement that they currently have expires on April 20th. And if they don't get one that they like by then, they have been authorized to strike. That'll be interesting. Who's going to open your door for you? That's Who's right. Who's going to carry your luggage? Who's going to say Take care good of day? your packages. Yeah. 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 You know, I was surprised when I was living in New York that. So many of these guys are Albanian immigrants. In fact, I I lived in a big high rise uh, that had several thousand apartments and literally every one of the doormen. And we probably had, I'm going to say a dozen of them. Every single one of them was Albanian. (laughs) Yeah. Well, good for them. I I hope that things work out for them. Absolutely. I also have an update on a story we talked about when we talked about Fort Bragg. I mentioned the very strange case of uh, Enrique Roman Martinez, yeah. who uh, somehow ended up decapitated yeah. after an illegal camping trip that he went on with a number of other soldiers. His body was never found. Only his head was found. The autopsy found that it was homicide. But of course, they don't know how he died. And we said at the time, um, the soldiers who were with him were not as forthcoming as you would have wanted them to be with authorities and sort of delayed the search for him mm-hmm. through their inaction. Mm-hmm. Now, seven soldiers who were camping with him. And when I say it was illegal, they weren't supposed to. It was COVID lockdown stuff. Right. They weren't supposed they to went go out anyway. Yeah, exactly. It's not like that. That was the regulation they broke. All seven soldiers are charged with conspiracy 
They're charged with failing to d- obey a direct order. They are tied to breaking or they are charged with breaking the regulation uh, that prevented them from traveling more than 50 miles from Fort Bragg during the COVID-19 pandemic. <laughs> Others are charged with taking hallucinogenic drugs. One is charged with disobeying a superior. One's charged with disobeying a superior again, a third count of disobeying a superior, making a false statement. So they're charged with all of these different process crimes. None of them are charged with murder, but they are going to face a court's martial over the course of the spring and the summer for these charges in connection with that death. But I don't know. I guess we just have to wait and see if more evidence comes up that actually, if his body is found uh, and more evidence is unearthed that can actually connect them to his death and not just the cover-up of his death. And you would think that the military would have these experienced um, investigators, right? The, the the Justice Department's always bringing in military investigators to help them with their with their work. In fact, in my case, I remember the FBI thanking the um, the Department of the Air Force for all of its fabulous assistance in in locking me up for 23 months. I still have no idea what the Air Force did, but you would think that they that they have the wherewithal to get to the bottom of this case. You know, I wonder how hard they're actually trying. Because yeah. you've got eight guys and what, you can't get a single one of them to flip on the others? Yeah. Come on. Yeah. Hey, that's what they, maybe this is, this is a army brotherhood mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. being demonstrated. That's what I'm afraid of. Yeah, so we'll watch that. And I, I hope to revisit the, the strange subject of deaths at Fort Bragg. We updated you on the death tolls uh, the other day. But yeah, to talk to someone closer to that topic would be really great. Feel good news. I don't know if you were excited for Pam and Tommy, the Hulu miniseries. I actually kind of was. Yes. I, I slightly know uh, Pam Anderson through Julian Assange, and uh, I'm pulling for her. Did you know that she's on Broadway now? No. She's playing Roxy Hart on Broadway in Chicago. You're kidding me. Yeah. And she has a really dedicated fan base who came, who were really excited. They gave her a standing ovations, according to CBS and other stories about it. So that's true. I didn't know she sang. I didn't know she sang either. Yeah. So, yeah, a, a little bit of a comeback. She was not associated with that Hulu series. No. Didn't, you know, I think she made a statement saying it felt like being victimized all over again, which is which is too bad. But it was definitely a sympathetic portrayal of, of what happens to them. I have to a, say, I have a great deal of respect for her. For sure. You know, she she has this reputation of being kind of a bimbo. It's just simply not true. Yeah. Not true at all. No, it's just, she's just cute and friendly yeah. and bubbly. And also, uh-huh. who cares? Like, what is a bimbo anyway? Yeah. What is yeah, a bimbo? Who cares? It, it, it's just sort of like if you are if you are friendly yeah. and warm mm-hmm. and you look a certain way, right. you must also be stupid. Exactly. If you just take away the stupid exactly. part, well, there's nothing wrong with being like nice to be around a- and hot, extroverted and friendly. Yeah, yeah, and that's hot. fine. Yeah, yeah. Pam Anderson didn't do anything wrong and didn't she, deserve. No, she didn't did deserve not. the way that she, she was treated not. after and that sex tape came out that she had nothing to do with. Nothing to do with. And she just got married about a year and a half ago uh, to a guy that that had been hired to be her bodyguard. Mm-hmm. And she said that this was the first time that she's ever like truly been in love. That she she finally gets to experience what that's like. Is she still married to him? I. I don't. Do you know I don't, something? Yeah, I, I cannot don't, confirm. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'll, that hasn't I'll, had I'll great Google luck it. in marriage. But hey, you know, neither have I. So. <laughs> yeah, neither um, have I. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and also in uh, news that look, this is in the Daily Star. So okay. let's just sprinkle some salt right. on it. Little but bit. Uh, just in case anybody out there listening needed a new goal, uh, a grandmother in Brazil is hoping for a call from the Guinness Book of World Records for becoming the oldest woman to get tattooed. 
She has a number of other tattoos. She's 105 years old. And she decided it was time to go get another one and see if she could, you know, make a name for herself. What, what is the tattoo? Do we know? She already has a tattoo of a rose. She has a tattoo of a hummingbird drinking nectar. Let me see. What is the? Oh, she got a golden key inked on her arm and the phrase only love builds. OK, beautiful, right? Yeah, good. Yeah. I don't have any tattoos, but I've been thinking about getting one. Yeah. How are we going to recognize your body? See, there it is. <laughs> I don't have any birthmarks or anything. I no, don't have any. So it what would be we, hard. What are you going to get? I was thinking of getting know thyself in ancient Greek. Oh, all right. OK. Don't, I don't disapprove. That seemed, that seemed perfectly fine. I'm also looking at a story. Here's a story just to close out here. I'm raising my eyebrows at this. Vegan diets are healthier and safer for dogs, study suggests. Mm. I'm going to have to look into this. I'm a vegetarian, but I don't make my dog be a vegetarian and I, I cook her meat. Look, that's just I, I can I can make the choice, but I don't necessarily think that right. it would be right to put that on a dog. Uh, so, yeah, a study found that dogs like vegan diets and uh, they went to the vet less often and had less huh. fewer general complaints. How did they get their protein? I mean, I don't know. I, I, I t literally do not know. I was about to guess eggs, but some people don't consider eggs vegan, so I'm, I'm not sure. I will say they were slightly edged out in good health by dogs that were eating a raw meat diet. <laughs> but they think that you can't necessarily count on those because those dogs were also a little bit younger. So I, I'm going to be looking into this. If I could safely make my dog vegetarian, I might try it. But I, I have my doubts. We're going to have to go on that note. That was fun. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks to all our guests. Thanks to our engineering and production team. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Bye.